Hey, Ryan. Good afternoon. How are you, sir? I'm good, Ramesh. How are you doing? Not too bad, myself. Thank you for taking the time for my third episode of my podcast. Uh, I've been following your work for, God knows, I don't know, two more, two years approximately. And the first time I came across your profile was one of your posts about your Tesla Model S and your drive was influencing your, your range, how the speed was influencing your range. And I told myself, finally, there's someone who is actually driving a car and commenting on it, not someone who knows about the car, but never drove one, but comments right. on it. So tell me something about yourself and maybe also start off with your Tesla experience. Yeah, so I, you know, I, I'm a fastener joining, mechanical joining and automation expert. I, I worked for Stanley Black & Decker for about 11 years. They have a group called Stanley Engineer Fastening. They do all the fasteners you're not going to find at a Home Depot. So they make the critical fasteners from Caterpillar to Halliburton to Tesla. Mm -hmm. um, they have different divisions. They own some iconic brands like Helicoil and Pop Rivets. And uh, there's an old brand of theirs called Camcar that used to make 80% of the world's engineered screws. They're still the number one supplier to McMaster. And so, like, definitely a reputable fastener company. Um, was there almost 11 years, last five years of that, I was managing the Tesla and EV business for them. Mm -hmm. um, so we lived in San Jose and, and got to work in the plant quite a bit. And that was where we, we bought, you know, you see the cars every day in the plant, start to kind of get there. I was funny enough, and when we moved to California in 2016, I was uh, on the Bronco waiting list um, in Houston. And so I had a dealer I've been on this waiting list for like 18 months. I'm in an old Ford Edge, like really ready to get out of it. Been patiently waiting for like 18 months to, to buy this Bronco. And I called him on a Wednesday and he said that um, it was going to be at least another year before they had any stock available. And so I immediately went on the Tesla website, found a used 2016 Model S that I could afford and then bought it in 2018 was, was when we bought it. So we, I loved that car. I, I drove it everywhere. It had horrible range. The first one we had, I think it only had 210. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, 210, 220. It was 220. So realistically in the heat or in the cold, it's like 130, 100. <laughs> um, so it, it was not ideal for road trips. I actually drove it to Texas and back five different times um yeah we'd go home for a month so my wife would fly home at later in the month and i would drive home with the dog for over a month and so it, it just it made sense to drive it i'll never do it again i'll tell you that <laughs> sure but why did it have such a bad range was it the 75d by any chance the smallest battery at the mall okay yeah yeah so the second one we i got where you saw probably saw my first post was a 2018 uh 90 okay. uh, so it had it was closer to like a 270 range still available on it and that was a lot better the problem with that one was the software was glitchy and mm -hmm. and i ended up selling it six months after i got it because the market was so high i made money on the sure. that I bought. <laughs> um this is before the used car market had tanked but um there was there was there was a capacitor issue was what maintenance was telling me that was shorting out the AC, shorting out the screen. The screen would go blank three or four okay. times a day um, while you're driving. And this is right as the Tesla service just got dumped into the ocean. 
and they'd lost all their their hands throughout the pandemic and there was i think houston used to have 18 service people now you go in there and there's just one sad little 20 year old kid standing at the counter with starry eyes and doesn't know a thing about the product kid. and because the one downside of tesla and all their ota powers they don't have a help desk like it's a software-based vehicle if my ac or my 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 infotainment's not working i want to be able to message you like apple and you send me an update i don't want to schedule a service call in five weeks is what they're currently averaging on scheduling a service call that's not critical and then you forget about it five weeks later i've missed the appointments i'm like with all the OTA power you have, I should be able to tell you what's wrong with my car and you check it and fix it. Right. Makes sense. I mean, that's, I think that's one of the Achilles heel here with, uh, with Tesla. They have all this software prowess. They have a beautiful car, brilliant range. They kind of redefine the way we think about automobiles, but there's a big, but the customer service part is still one of those glitchy areas where they still have a lot of, you know, criticism. They're receiving criticism. And rightfully so, because you, you own a Ford, you own a GM or, or a Volkswagen, you bring your car into the dealership, they fix it for you. That's it, right? And in this case, you don't have a proper dealership, just an established network. And the good thing is the car is quite reliable. I mean, I've been driving one for the last eight months, and it's been perfect. Uh, but once it goes bad, for some reason, software or hardware, where do you call, right? You You reach out to the app and... You wait for the, the record. So that I, I can sympathize with that. And that's absolutely a pain point owning a Tesla if there is an issue, right? That's that's a big if again. Yeah, and as a software guy now in my, my new role at Finding Engineered Solutions, we, we run a SaaS effort for EV designers. But sure. um, now that I look so much at the software, like, you know, in, in the lean startup world, the term feedback loop, the term minimal viable product, those are those are things that we do. We get the first Rivian R1T out the door and then we clean up the mistakes for the next three years. That That's how software launches too. Um, but there's gotta be that feedback loop. And I don't see that at Tesla. I don't see the customer feedback loop that's telling you, I don't like your map on Model Y. I love the car that my wife drives, but when I am used to my Model S and the two screens, and now I go to a singular screen and a singular map, I lost the map on my Model S. There was a nice little map in the steering screen. Now my wife has this massive map and it's like, I'm trying to navigate a, a city streets and it's still showing me the 300 mile view. And, I, and I, I'm like, where's the zoom in? Where's the additional help? And I have no recourse to tell them that that sucks and I'd like you to fix it. <laughs> Sad. I mean, how about the small screen, right? I, I read that I was looking for one for my model three. There is a, an aftermarket part which you can buy. I think it costs $250. And um, to f- to fit it, you can either fit it by yourself, or you can ask someone else to fit it, and that, that's going to cost you another hundred dollars. That is a lifesaver in many of the Model Threes and Ys I see, because n- not many are comfortable taking the eye off the street and looking into the map, because it's still quite an adjustment to make. Right? I'm quite okay with the touch only interface because I got used to it. Right. I don't miss the buttons per se, but what I do miss is having that 
augmented reality kind of projected screen in front of me. I, I never had to take my you know, view off the street when I was driving my old master. But now I have to take my to check something. Am I on the right street? Did I miss a turn? Did I take an exit, which is correct? All these things come into play when you take your eye off the street, especially when you're having like in, in the streets of Europe, as you can imagine, there are some streets where you have like six exits in the, in, in, in the span of, I don't know, 25 meters. <laughs> and then you miss one and you have to go another 20 mile radius to come back to the same point. So that is a pain point, which I have with my, um, my, my Tesla. But currently they have the Google Maps, which I think is amazing. They even show you, so at least the version that we have here, it has the Google map. If you go to the map view, it shows on the bottom right corner, it's powered by Google. And Is it? It's amazing, man. It's, it's, yeah, it's I don't so have much easier. Because I, I have to vet their math. Like, because I, I, since we moved home to Texas, I drive a lot more to Austin and, and see the factory and whatever. But um, so I'm in the car 10,000 times more than we ever were for the last three years in California. And it, the map is frustrating. Like I've noticed that it's often wrong. Like I'll vet it with Apple maps and there is a nice feature that you can send the Apple map and it'll actually show it'll, it'll map oh, really? that route within it. Um, and that's convenient, okay. but yeah, the, the map for me is a, is a huge sticking point. And on model S the toggles did a lot more. And I just found last week, if you hold down the left toggle, it gives you more options to give the toggle, but even just something as simple as, as the fan for the AC, you could toggle that up and down with the right because the autopilot was all in the shifter. There was no, there was an additional shifter for autopilot down on the bottom left. There was the blinker shifter and that left that right toggle up. It could control the radio, change stations, it could control the AC. There was a number of things you could do with that one button because I find myself, it's bad on Tesla. It's even worse when I drove a Polestar. I oh, find yeah. myself trying to mess with that screen and I'm going 80 miles an hour and I'm doing this. It's not safe. Like, Polestar is worse because they don't have one operating system. They have Google Maps. They have Google Play for music, Spotify for music, and these all show up in the home screen, but all the vehicle controls conflict with the app. So if you're messing with their AC, it takes you into a whole new screen yeah. while yeah. you were trying to pay attention to the map. The map's now disappeared completely. Yeah. Yeah. And that I almost wrecked. Like I, I you know, cause Hertz, they give you these EVs with no instructions, no how to, Here's the key. Have fun. Don't bring it back empty or we'll charge you $35. Like that, <laughs> that's the speech you get. And then you get in it and you're like, okay, I thought this would be a lot easier to figure out. And I'm driving a brand new electric vehicle. And even as someone that drove a Tesla for six years, I didn't know what to do. There was so many things born about it. It was like, okay, this is not comfortable to me. This is absolutely the case, right? So what I do tell all my friends and colleagues is that I keep as a tradition to test drive all the new EVs. The one thing that is common is no controls are common. The common denominator is actually every EV has its own way of reacting to your inputs, be it your gas pedal or your, your the way the steering reacts, the, the touch interface. Especially you, you spoke about Polestar. My experience with Polestar was exactly the same. 
and add on top of it, the screen size is quite small compared to the one that you have in, in Tesla. So you're actually messing up in a smaller ski, screen, trying to touch the interface, trying to go back, go forth, close in the app. That is kind of a, a, an issue, absolutely. I, and and I probably you might have an older version of Tesla. The one that I have is from 2022. Perhaps the latest version have, they have, uh, I mean, across all the models, they have Google Maps as, as uh, default. Yeah, I, I'll have to check that the next time I look at it to see. Ours is a 21 Model Y um, is what my wife drives. We got rid of my Model S, so we're down to one car. It still should be possible that you are getting the latest version of the apps, I think. I mean, the one I have just one app, the default app, and it comes to navigation. I don't have any specific. I don't we just don't even that. have the turn, turn signal views updates. So the newer ones give you the, the peripheral. Yes. I don't yes. have the turn signal peripherals, and I don't have the rear backup peripherals where the Model okay. Y performance I rented from Hertz. Like when I was backing up, I could see center and the sides. I don't sides, have yeah. on our, our Model Y now. Okay, that's interesting. I mean, I, it's very interesting that you have so many different uh, options. Like it's still from 2022, you said, right? 2021? 21, yeah. I mean, we yeah. weren't straight so, out the factory. I waited until they had enough screw-ups that I was aware of personally that I waited for some of that to die down because you never buy the first year. Then that's, that's, that's true. A- that's true. I mean, I have to tell you, Ryan, I mean, I've uh, had a few uh, rides back and forth in Michigan with the Tesla Model Y. The autopilot, that it works much better in the United States than in Germany because the, the streets are so... Co- similar between the states the, the road signs are common between the states there are a few exceptions for sure but the, the streets are quite wide the, the roads are straight it's much more of an easier implementation when it comes to autopilot in the united states than it is in germany or in, in europe per se every country has their own way of executing the road regulations so autopilot is something that i do miss driving a tesla in in germany because it sucks here yeah, I could see that. I, I could. I, our highways are so. I mean, y'all have the autobahn, but we, we have twenty-seven autobahns going in thirty-seven different directions, and so no matter what city you're driving to, it's a long straight. Right. Yeah. There's nothing much it, you could do. At it all. gets fussy at night. I've done it enough. You know, from California to Texas, there's certain areas where I can't read the sides of the road. Lately, it's been glitching. Um, doing an autocorrect. If I'm just using okay. the the pedal automation mm-hmm. and not the steering automation, it will register this. We're too close to the side of the lane, and it has that auto correct where it'll actually mm-hmm. push it push it back. Yeah, yeah. But it's happened a number of times when I'm dead center in the lane, and it's actually pushing me out of the lane. Oh, okay. <laughs> Now it catches okay. itself. It like gives you a boost. To, it, it's not like, I don't know if you'd ever driven some of the old, I forget who had it, but a few of the, the legacy automotive had some ADOS early on driver safety stuff. And one of them right. had the leaning correction and it was like knee jerk. Like when it did it, you, I mean, you felt the yeah. steering wheel just yeah. jerk yeah. out of your hands where well, Tesla, smooth. you don't yeah. feel it in the steering wheel. The car's doing it for you. And it, it, I think it caught itself both times. I think it, was going to veer out, and then it realized, oh, crap, I screwed up and pushed back in. <laughs> That's interesting. 
Do you try with autopilot on most of the time when you go for a long distance drive or do you prefer to try yourself? I don't use the steering um, because I get yelled at by it too much. I, I My grip's not tight enough. I need to get the enhanced. My buddy has like one of the first Model 3s and so he got free charging for life. He got free advanced driving for life. Like he, This is when they were wow. giving away the score. Um, and his has the advanced and his Model 3 and he can take both hands off which I, I can't. Um, so I may do the upgrade, but right now I just use the, the cruise control automation. I don't, I don't use the steering cause it, it, it's not worth it. The, if you ever drive, it's like driving from, from Michigan or Detroit to Cleveland. It, it's very small towns. Like you had a small town, every other yep. city and the roads aren't that great. And, and so it's like I, the steering just fusses too much, at least in Texas. Um, I use it. I use it when I use it, but it always yells at me. It's it never okay. fails. I'm either not looking or my hands aren't holding tight enough, and it screams at me to 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 stop it. <laughs> that's that's a weird weird reaction from the car, right? If you think about it, yeah. you're from the south. How is the weather affecting your range? Can you comment on it? So my wife had a my wife is a, a design forest um and so she had some photo shoot yesterday and so she, she drives out to first and foremost it's killing it on the on the highway highway is is miserable the okay. road from houston to austin is very hilly mm -hmm. um i drove from dallas to austin meeting investors and then i met tesla and then i came into to houston and multiple times there was they, they build these roads for gas vehicles so it's a slow incline and then a crazy slow decline right. where I want the slow incline, but then I want your steep decline to give me regenerative braking. Like in mm -hmm. California, the hills do this and then that. So when you're driving from L.A. to, to San Jose, you get these long, deep, steep uh, uh, right. down curves that, that ramp your battery back up so you don't see as much. So I had hills and I had 105 you know, Fahrenheit degree weather and it, it ate, it ate my lunch. It ate more All than right. half of the range. The other part that is horrible is the cabin protection. So my mm -hmm. wife's out at a photo shoot, the car's sitting in direct sun. She's there for nine hours and me just being me, I'm not creeping on her, but I wanted to watch the battery because I'd been noticing that I was traveling earlier this week. She lost 30% of her battery in an eight-hour period without the car moving. Yeah, the battery needs to keep it cool, right? If not, it'll go into the region where you don't want it to be. That's absolutely Is that right. what it is? Is it, is it something blows up, something catches fire? If it gets to normal cars, yeah. you get 160 in the cabin. So what happens if the cabin of a Tesla gets to 160? I think that's a common denominator. If you think about it, I mean, I, I saw this once in action with a Kona, a Hyundai Kona, and also the one with the Ionic 5 and 6. If you keep it on the driveway and you have asphalt to below it, it's 110, 115, the batteries will also get reflected heat from your roads, right? So even though if you're, you're so up top, upside of the car, in this case, Tesla has a glass panel, which means the heat can transfer through much faster. Yes. Uh, but other cars, let's say Ionic 5 or 6, they do have pretty good insulation from up top, but they have still the reflection issue from the roads, right? So what it does is 
it'll kick off its uh, low voltage battery to check the battery temperature in a regular basis, especially it'll tra keep track also your record temperatures. So the history of last five, six, seven days, and it'll know, okay, my average is, I don't know, hundred degrees, right? So it'll know the time in some cases, and it'll know, okay, at this point of time, I have to measure the temperature again because it's the day and based on my average, it's going to be 100 plus. And yes. if it is 100 plus, it'll start the cooling, actually. Yep. That's what is eating your battery life when it's just parked in your garage or in your driveway. Is it just AC or is thermal turning on at that point, too? Um, depends on the, on, the, on the duration of your waiting period. So at one point of time, it'll not just be AC. They also have the cooling, uh, coolant liquid, which will go through the battery which is usually used for preheating in winter, right? And it'll do the exact same thing with cooling uh, in the summer. The weird thing about batteries, as you know, the 20 degrees Celsius, 60-ish um, Fahrenheit, is actually both cooling and heating. It depends on the, the year, the time right. of the year. If it's winter, the same thing, it's heating. If it's summer, the same thing is cooling. So the, the infrastructure of the thermal management is designed for just one target temperature with a small range so that they don't have to in invest crazy amount of you know, calculations and permutations. Nevertheless, it's going to eat up your battery, especially if, if you're not in a, in a charger and the battery is actually using the power from the charger to cool it or heat it. It's going to take much of your power, absolutely. That's my biggest complaint about the EV market is the, the, the lack of believability in range. Like, I... You tell me you have a 400-mile range based on me driving three of the top OEM in the country's cars. That's not accurate. You don't have a 400-mile range. You have, at best, a 220-mile range, a 200. That retention is the gap in the market today that I think even new buyers don't truly recognize. It's like I, I've driven these so long and I've seen so many cases where I've lost more than half of the range. We have a 305 mile range to drive to Dallas, Texas. It's 242 miles and there's hills along the way. The speed limit is 85 on a Texas highway. So you're, you're going 90, 95. And then any, we, anybody that's drove a Tesla long enough knows that anything above 72 significantly yeah. eats at the battery so at 90 or god forbid it i'll drive 82 i'll actually i'm driving under the speed limit on a road that allows my race car to drive as fast as it wants because i'm worried about the battery drop like that's annoying. you gave me a race car and then you told me to keep it at 70 like the worst was california where there are no speed limits not literally but Te technically, technically before the yeah. pandemic you you it wasn't uncommon for someone to pass you on i5 on your way to LA going 140, 150. It's just, it's insane how fast okay. they And here I'm driving in my 210 mile range, little Model S. And if I go over 69, I can't make it to the next charger. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. No, I think that is one of the things, right? Uh, the, the funny thing about the switch between nice application to EV, I'm pretty sure you've seen all these you know, flyers going around the old, um, F-150s and Dodge Rams it is usually the, the city average on consumption and the highway average. Usually the ICE applications, they give a better highway average than the city one. It's absolutely the other way around with um, EVs because of all the recuperation and regenerative braking. And the numbers that 
see as a range, you have to take it with a grain of salt because it, it also mm-hmm. combines the weather effect, that the way you drive, the environmental conditions. When I say environmental conditions, even the wind direction matters the most. Just like you fly between east and west coast, one way you, you are faster the other way. It's absolutely the case. I was driving, I think last week it was, I, I had approximately 10 miles of wind, but tailwind, not headwind. And I was driving 140 kilometers, so I would say 75 miles an hour. And I had a consumption of 13 kilowatt hours per 100 kilometers. So 60 miles, I was using 30, 13 kilowatt hours, which is insane. But it is purely thanks to the, the tailwind I had. It, it, it was literally pushing me into the, in the direction. The whole way was just single direction. So I had like an absolute killer. But on the way back, I had headwind. And it was exactly the same, 10 miles an hour headwind. And I had 19 kilowatt hours per 100 kilometers. So that also has an effect. So that, 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 that would be my next LinkedIn post. I would say the, the automakers are c- concerned about the head-on CD, the, the coefficient of drag value. I would actually encourage the, the automakers to make the rear end as rugged as possible. It's not so slippery because the ta- then the tailwind will actually give you more range, is my theory. And actually, my last trip, it kind of confirmed that theory because the same 10 miles an hour wind was taking up almost seven kilowatt hours per 100 kilometers. And the the whole trip was 450 kilometers. So it it cost me close to 20, 25 kilowatt hours just because it was a headwind. Yep. I don't, my friend Andy. A gentleman named Andy um, that was at Stanley is now at a new company, and he, he's he's a scientist type, so he's he's very analytical. But the company is a massive like process indicator company, so they they map out what's actually happening in a real world scenario versus what you assumed in a lab. And he has a theory, and he's probably not wrong, that the thermal teams are are not the systems that are created for them to make their decisions of when to heat, when to cool, when to stall, you know, all the things that are involved in thermal management from where the tubes go, you know, you've got some that are running lines, Tesla's yeah. new model Y Austin, it's there's plates underneath. So it's a very different approach because they're dropping in those singular cell packs and you can't run tubes up and down the different rows of cells. But his, his, concept that he wants to validate with battery and EV pack manufacturers is the battery supplier, you know, the the Panasonic, the LG, the whoever, they rely heavily on their supplier's data to then put that in front of their clients. So Mm -hmm. there's limits to the anode, there's limits to the cathode. And so when they project a certain amount of range, those are often based on projections that came from the supplier's data. And then they put that into their data and provide it to these thermal teams. Well, he wants to build a system with his company that actually tracks thermal management in a much better way and reports back the tailwind effect, the headwind effect, the heat effect. And so they can start to look at all the driving factors and range loss and even map it out, you know, maybe the folks that are closer to the ground with the traditional skateboard pack versus Tesla now has that almost a foot off the ground with, you know, a whole casting below it. Is that more optimal to keep them from overheating from underground heat? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, this, 
the, the thermal scenario is, is a tricky one because, as you know, heat uh, is slow. It has a bigger inertia to change, which means you can detect something with the thermal sensor, which sits somewhere. And by the moment you, you detect it, you're not detecting it inside the cell. It's on top of the cell or somewhere on top of a, a connecting bar, whatever that is. So you need to recalculate what could be the temperature inside the cell. So it's usually a threshold, and that threshold has a direct correlation to the cell core temperature. That's how they, they set this, um, let's call it threshold. And this threshold is not usually one value. It's range depending on the outside temperature and the inside temperature. So if it's a winter, it's a bit of a broad range. So because they let the ohmic resistance to, to does it nasty, so they don't invest active thermal energy. But if it is win, uh, summer, they actually pre-cool the system because they know once it gets going and you hit 60 miles an hour because of the of the straights, you're going to take energy consistently out of the battery system, which means you're going to also create the heat inside the battery system. So they right. need to also predict this in advance. Anyway, I read an article recently saying some of the German OEMs are trying to do an AI-based predictive cooling and predictive heating. So they know based on your navigation data, the year, the time, the external temperature, all these, so that it'll already predict, do I actually need cooling at all? I believe, in, in, in my experience at least, Tesla does a wonderful job of cooling because they invest the least amount of energy that is required to cool and heat the system, except for the extremes, of course, the cool, too cold and too hot regions. And most of the time, even moderately hot days, I would say 90-ish days, my Tesla rarely cools the system. Really? It's, it's, it's unbelievable. And other systems I've driven, I've, I've driven a couple of other cars, electric cars, and most of them you can actually hear the, the water pump going. <laughs> and it's, it's, even before you start, because it needs to keep up and it knows that I've given a long target, I need to reach, I don't know, 350 kilometers. So it'll actually pre-cool the system and it'll be constantly cooling in the hopes to keep that temperature in the normal range. So the, the philosophy of thermal management is completely different depending on which OEM you're taking into account. Some are really aggressive in terms of pre-cooling and preheating. Some are very, I would say, casual the way Tesla operates. The only time I see Tesla system going on is when outside it's a moderately cold air, I would say 40 to 50 degree Fahrenheit, and you select a charging point, which is on the way. Then it says, okay, I'm going to preheat the system because if not, I'll not be able to get the full power that I could get from a charging point. What is it doing? The only time you can force it. What's it doing in this new preconditioning function? So when I when I select a charger on my trip, about five ten miles out, it's the it, the, the the thing comes up and says preconditioning for best yeah. battery charge. Yeah. What is that the same thing? It's kind of preparing. It's the same the thing. So the the way you can you can visualize this. Uh, this is how I learned it. Uh, I'm a mechanical guy like yourself. I I came from a long line of diesel engineering professionals and i'm now selling batteries the last 11 years and that's how the market works right um, the the cells they need a certain temperature the cells are pretty much like human beings they operate really well between the window of i would say 55 to 75 degree fahrenheit so close to 15 to 25 degrees celsius that's where they work the best and they work the best in both directions you can charge the cell well and also you can discharge the cell well of course depending on the manufacturer the type of format some cells, they are better in the lower end. Some cells are on the upper end. But the, the common denominator is always the same. This is the range. So the, the trouble comes in, especially when you are co trying to charge it fast, 
and the temperatures is pretty low. That's the, the troubled area. So what manufacturers, they do is they have clever mechanisms to predict the temperature of the core before you get to an, a, a charging point. That's, that's one way to do it. The other way how you could do it is like Tesla does it. Once Tesla knows based on your route that you need to stop on a particular charging station, that is a high power charging station. It'll actually spend active, it'll take energy out of your battery system to, to heat the battery system to an extent that it, it is already in the 55 to 75 degree Fahrenheit zone. So when you're then charging a system, you can, it can accept the complete power that is given from the charging point, and it'll then, you know, some at some point of time during the charging process, it will stop the heating. And that is the one lead time you will see the Tesla systems actively pushing the thermal energy in or out the system. Yeah, and fascinating the, technology. It's amazing, and it it leads to yet another complaint of of the process when you travel. Home, I'm happy. I got a destination charger. When we had two Teslas in the garage, you plug one in when you get home from work at five and you plug the next one in before you go to bed and they're both full. Like it was perfect. Um, the superchargers, I've been fortunate that Texas has, they used to be two in all of Houston. So Houston's 125 miles in diameter and there's literally buildings and houses the entire 125 miles. So it's, it's massive where half of California has either moved here or to Austin. Um, so, but we only had two chargers when we moved home in 21, there were two superchargers. And at the time we still hadn't installed the plug. So we'd have to go to the one 20 miles from here. Now there's now I drive home through the city and I see a thousand red dots have popped up. It's insane. They, Originally, we're bringing them in on trailers for holiday weekends because it was so bad that they didn't have enough chargers. Well, they fixed that problem. But That's I keep good. getting the 250 chargers, which I love because they're, they start at anywhere from 1,000 miles an hour to 1,100 miles an hour. So you get in there and, and, and you know, if you got a 300 mile battery, 900 miles an hour, you know, you get close to that 15, 20 minute charge that we all want what I sit and watch and get frustrated as I watch is it's a thousand miles an hour, then it's 700 miles an hour. And by the time I still need 40, you know, 30, 25%. If I want a full charge for a road trip, I'm now down at 200 miles an hour and I'm better off just unplugging it and stopping again two hours later. I hear you. I hear you. I mean, this problem is it's, there's a solution for this problem. The, the thing is, the voltage is the issue here because the, the, the higher the voltage, um, the, the less the current that you need to pump in. And the current is the, the devil here because the more current you pump in, uh, the more heat loss you're going to expect. That's why the system will regulate it in such a way that initially you'll, you'll be getting the complete 1,000 miles an hour, 1,100 miles an hour. Um, slowly it has to restrict it because if not the temperature and also the, the current itself will reach a certain threshold, which is not allowed. The solution to this is to increase the voltage. And this you see already in the cars like Ionic 6. I saw a report recently, Ionic 6, the first 55, 60% of the SOC till the battery gets 60%. It's consistent with 250 to 300 kilowatts. It's consistently 1,000 kilowatts. So in that case, you actually can get 20% to 80% in less than 15 minutes, which is unbelievable. That's and the goal. Because, I mean, that's, if that should be the goal. Yeah, if you're over the age of 40 and, and you drink soda or coffee, you, you know, you're going to need to stop every couple hours anyway on a road trip. So 
I can make it to Austin without charging, which is ideal. I can make it to Austin or Dallas or, or, or San Antonio, but Dallas is right. It's only 242 miles. So you would think with a 310 battery range that I should be able to make it, but I can't. I, you know, I often have to stop. So Yeah, the 310 should also come with an, uh, uh, with an exclamation. It, uh, 310 miles, I think, if you drive 60 miles an hour. <laughs> which, which is yeah, the, the case. The ATM rating is a whole other topic. Yeah, they're doing it in an air-conditioned building. They're doing it on a dyno. And, and, and there's no wind drag even factored in. It's just spinning the tires. I'm like... Yeah. That's not realistic. Like y'all, that's almost fraud. Like you should be allowed to give me that range. I feel like you're lying to me. <laughs> it's just the case on the ice as well, to be fair. So, but the, the thing is, you don't have to wait 40 minutes to refill your car, which is one of the biggest complaints and fair complaints as well. And that's one of the reasons why Tesla is switching to thousand volts uh, for their semi truck and the cyber truck. And that'll be the trend moving forward. That is my belief. So most of these guys have already gone 800 volts. You see the Porsche Taycans, the Ionic 5, the Ionic 6. And some of them are going beyond it. And also the Lucid Air has 900 volts of voltage. Yeah, I saw where, where Peter's not on. He's one of the few that hasn't converted to the NACS yet. He's yeah. it, some post that he put out that says it's just a plug. Um, I don't disagree with him. It is just a plug. But... I haven't pulled up to a charge point last week and seeing the other three plugs that look like a nightmare to use. I was like, uh, I, really, I couldn't even use a charge point because they used to have an adapter for their mall chargers that you could okay. stick a Tesla adapter on. The new fast chargers, where that adapter would normally sit, there's a whole other plug above it. Mm-hmm. So it's a du- dual plug kind of setup. You have to pop yeah. Nobody cared about the post, but I posted it like four days ago. I showed. And the other thing that was crazy was I love ChargePoint because they're they're Apple Pay. So you just double click your phone, hold it up next to the okay. thing, and you're off to the races. So if you just, it's for destination chargers, it was perfect. You're going to be at the mall for yeah. a few hours. And it's because Blink's hard to get in. Um, Electrify is not as hard. EVgo, but Blink's impossible. I've never been able to get a Blink to work. So I like charge point but the normal screen that's just a typical touch screen that's easy to use on their mall chargers this fast charger they stuck this piece of plexiglass in front of it oh. so the, a screen with a touch button behind the plexiglass plexiglass that's weird and it, it's so bad that all four of them there's punch marks there's people like you ha- i had to take my knuckle and and knuckle it like i had to hit it <laughs> To get it to click the button behind it, and there's cracks in the plexiglass, and I'm like, whose idea was this? This is not a good functionality user in you know in my world UX. This is not a good UX experience. No, no, and there's a, this is a touchscreen for a, for a reason, right? I mean, why would right. you put a plexiglass on top of it? It's it's pretty weird. I wonder if the client, because they were funded by something called Texas Wind Power, and I wonder if the client like may just, you know, we don't want these vandalized people and you know, it's Texas. So granted Austin's like the, the San Jose of Texas, but it, you know, it's still Texas. So there are a lot of haters um, and all the oil and gas people, all my friends that work on drilling rigs think EV is, is, is sci-fi and it's never going to work. And you guys are all crazy, but maybe they're worried about vandalism. I don't know. <laughs> 
No, and some of the criticisms are very fair criticism. I mean, you have to take that, uh, you know, as it is. We should not try to say that EV is the way to go. There are some things that need to be improved. One of the things that you mentioned is the charging wait times. And the United States is a huge country. And someone who has never been to the United States, they will not be able to imagine the scale of this place, right? right. I mean, drive from one state to another. It's like traveling between countries in Europe. And for that scale of a country, of course, you have a very valid established network of charging, but that is not enough per se. You need other technologies. And I believe, I'm, a, I'm a firm believer of swapping. I think swapping might have a place in the United States, especially in the United States, given the size of the country. I mean, imagining drive through and waiting for your your Coke or coffee, whatever that is, and then your battery is being swapped with a fully charged battery. You don't have to wait. It's 20 minutes. I think that would be good in, in the major cities, especially the congested one, like in New York. You know, 90%, 80% of people that live in Manhattan don't own a car. Um, and if they do own a car, they keep it outside the city. But if you have to transition into those neighborhoods every day, like a cab driver, like a delivery driver, all those people need somewhere to charge. That's hard to put charging infrastructure in Manhattan when the price per square foot is $3,000 or something. Yeah, it's insane. Um, yeah. Right now, there's if <laughs> give Tesla credit if you want to give them credit. There is currently a charger every two hours in any part of this country on an interstate. There's oh. a Tesla supercharger. If you drive from Los Angeles to Orlando, Florida, there is a Tesla supercharger every two hours. And they're That's often nice. empty. They're half of every one I went to this week were empty. Nobody out. But, I mean, they're preparing for the future, right? Because I think the NCAS, the plug that they have now collaborated with other OEMs, I think this was a long-term strategy. But it did not happen by chance. I mean, for, you know, and he's been a strategist the whole life. They have been establishing the whole network especially also working with some of the the big chains like Walmart and, you know, Moore's and stuff. I think the, the positioning has been really critical. And the, the biggest confirmation I have is Mercedes-Benz saying that they're going to work with Tesla supercharging network is an amazing news. I mean, especially for the American customer in that case, because that is one hell of a car. And the only thing that I would complain about it is the charging network in Europe. I, I'm on. So we were BMW people as a family before we became Tesla people. And then my grandmother's Mercedes live or die her whole life. She was a real estate agent. She'd buy a new one every 10 years. She'd save, you know, all her commissions that she could and then buy it. That was her treat to herself. And her and her best friend owned the, the diesel tanks. Uh, she called it Mert and drove that for 20 something years. And She's still at 91 years old driving her last Mercedes that she bought at 80. So uh, love the brand, the EQS launch in 2019. That was that was bad. Um, that that didn't work out. But I've only had two careers in my life and there's there's Europe and there's German. Um, and so <laughs> there's Denspec and then there's German uh, there. <laughs> If that, that was always the hardest hurdle in both my careers. Like you could get everybody in Europe and London to buy it, but it was when you got the Germans to agree to do it. Game changing. Like BMW said yes, Audi said yes. Okay, we're good. Like we can go to the rest of the world. That's true. They said the standard. 
I mean, the standards are really high, especially in the automotive sector, and that you could see in some of the requests for quotations that we used to get, they're over 600 pages long, and we had like two weeks to respond to that. Yep. 600 pages. And there are details that you'll not be able to believe. The, the attention to detail is out of this world, and that kind of reflects in the car, right? I mean, be it Mercedes, BMW, Volkswagen, these cars are really of high quality, especially in the ICE sector. And they're trying to catch up the same thing, kind of bring that side of their experience and expertise and try and match it in the EV space. And that's where I think the challenge lies. Yeah, I do too. Somebody posted on one of my automotive posts that the BMW they worked line that they worked on, it was X4, 5, and 6, um, was doing 500 per shift which is insane it's less yeah. than a minute per per car rolling off the okay. line that's been my focus lately is says if you really dig into some of these startups it's like you know Fisker was doing three minutes with magna on the first line which is rockets yeah. it's they're moving fast for a first yeah. launch like that like model s first line was like one guy called it a very well-oiled garage and, and years later, they would still refer to it as a well-oiled garage, but it was also their most profitable. So the least automation and most profitable product they make, it's like something, something's there, but that only works in low volume. You, you can only do, Lucid could do 50,000 airs and make them perfect. Can you yeah. make 500,000 gravities and do the same thing? That, that's what's really interesting on the luxury side. And also the startups, right? I think there's a, a general misconception that you do one car, which looks absolutely perfect, try to scale it. You don't have to go far, but try to scale 10,000 units a year. That is a huge challenge, trying the supply chain, making the optimization of the line. I think Tesla kind of set the, the pace in such a way that everyone thought, oh, we could make a car. Tesla can do it and they're successful. Let's make one. I think that's such a bad implication you should look into the op i heard that lordstown they shut down now which yeah. was a huge huge story romeo power is in trouble also the same lines on the commercial vehicle side there are tons of these startups which made absolutely beautiful brilliant cars one-offs and prototypes but production is always um, a challenge I had to get, so I, I took over our EV markets in, I think, as early as 15, so, you know, I, or 14. So I'm at the tail end of Fisker One, now now Karma. I'm at the tail end. Of, Faraday hasn't gone bankrupt yet, but they're about to go bankrupt. Uh, and Tesla's, yeah. Tesla's in the middle of launching Model X. And so I watched that singular high-end sedan model over and over and i mean i think the faraday one's like three hundred thousand dollars like it's insane yeah and then yeah. then comes rivian and says you know what let's just launch three programs all at once and that to me was brilliant because you kind of yeah you're still launching really expensive one the but the van was the 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 genius part there because i you know you had sprinter vans and you had bright drop kind of Rivian and Bright Drop are pretty along the pretty single similar. path, yeah. but Bright Drop had GM doing this out the door, and and Ford, even the Oshkosh vehicle for the postal service, right. I think I think it's a Ford chassis, um, is is what they used on the test track at least. So that's okay. a combo project because Oshkosh is really good at making top hats, you know, if right. you will. 
right. the thing that goes on the chassis, that's that's what they've done for hundreds of years for the military and fire trucks and whatever. But them joining with someone that makes the chassis for government bids and industrial orders, that's the whole other thing that's going to be interesting how these all merge because there's auto and there's everybody else. Right. And so I spent the first six years of my fastener career working in industrial. So okay. John Deere, Caterpillar, Daimler truck, Kenworth truck, like trucks, trailers, giant mining, giant ag vehicles, and giant construction vehicles. And from their purchasing models to their tier relationships, um, they're crazy different than auto. And there's almost no automation. So as these semi programs like Tesla semi, I think they learned the hard way that trucking's not like making a car. Um, no. and so why we keep seeing the, the delays. Um, and I, I was lucky enough, you know, to see, you know, the progression of that project and it's insanely amazing, but how do you scale it and how do you ramp it is much different because they, in trucking, like the United States, they put all the chassis together with what's called a huck bolt. It's like this giant bolt that looks like a nut and bolt, but you squish the nut onto the bolt. So if you're anywhere in the okay. U.S. and you see a trailer or a truck semi driving next to you, it looks like nuts and bolts all along the chassis. It's actually huck bolts all along the chassis. It's on every train, every bus. Anything in the United States that's bigger than a pickup truck, they're using huck bolts to put the chassis together. Well, these are huge tools that, you know, two-handed, 35-pound, 25-pound tools that are squishing this metal nut onto this pin or bolt. And right. so it's so manual. And, and if you go into a Daimler plant, the same guy or gal has been putting that product together for 20 years. Like they know when the... They know when the rig's not working. They know how to get it off if they screw up. There's so much that goes into that that's very, very manual. And Tesla's not a manual company. They're an automated company. So how do they and some of the other ones start to bring? The first one I saw was Harbinger Truck. I don't know if you saw that. They're uh, they're using a casted battery pack. Oh, really? Oh, no. I didn't see that. Yeah, another post that I think people cared about that one because it was pretty neat. They're the first trucking application that's using an automated solution, uh, automotive solution. Interesting. I mean, trucking per, per se, regardless of the powertrain, is a totally different animal, right? So producing a mass production, production car is completely different than putting together a truck or a bus. Right. And the, the amount of knowledge that goes in there is unbelievable. And if you're electrifying that, I think Tesla got the battery and powertrain part really well because they are using, as I saw, they're using the same steering wheel from the cars. The infotainment system is from the car. They're actually using the same motors. They're using the motors from Tesla plate um, because it's powerful enough and it's more than enough. The only thing that's probably new is the battery system. They have nine of them squished in under the cabin. And it's well placed and I think it it has nine or three to, so three rows oh. three each so nine at least from the pictures that I saw online it, I, it looks I, like I helped on the box so I, it was three boxes <laughs> in my I, I don't get past the box so for me I everything we have ever done in my career is, is designing the the mechanical box around okay. the right. um so like I would design stuff for their penthouse where they're all their fuses go on their traditional battery packs, um, studs and fasteners and clips and all this other stuff. But then 
on the semi, like I would always hear people refer to the, the, the three boxes or 10 times what's in a Model Y is, is basically the, the math that we got. Right, right. I'll send you a picture on LinkedIn. Uh, I think I posted this a couple of months ago. It's a really interesting position that they chose because everyone else, they're going for outside the chassis, outside the rail kind of design, which is far away from the cabin. Much easier to service for sure, but it is also exposed to the environmental conditions, heat and dust and whatnot. Well, the mid-range, it's underneath, it's not exposed? No, it's directly underneath the cabin, so it's not exposed. So I think that's one of the reasons that they can afford to have such a long range because you don't have to invest energy again to heat or cool the system. Because everybody else, because, you know, in automotive, you have the same problem that you see in trucking, and it's going to be even worse in trucking, is, is automotive, a lot of the legacies either were or still are trying to ram EV into ICE ar architecture. So where the gas tank was, let's throw a clunky battery box in there. And where the engine was, let's put all the inverter package and let's pick the batteries wherever we can get them. Like it's crazy. Well, trucks will do a similar path and they'll, they'll, they build the truck out because the engine's an engine. So they're, you know, even the startups like an XOS, like when you see those prototypes or they're actually have working trucks on the road, there's a big black box on either side. And those are the battery packs and they're sitting there like, like toolboxes and it's right. like and it's the worst problem that I, every trucking company i've dealt with so far every bus company i've dealt with the pack is the hardest part for them to figure out they've either partnered with cummins and let cummins build it for them complete engine and pack like most of the buses is a cummins power pack and a cummins engine like that's the route they went problem is cummins is two years behind on delivery for half of those systems. So now now they're trying to make a box. It's got to be watertight. It's got to be airtight. It's got to be all these things. They don't know how to do any of that. <laughs> right, right. Especially the ceiling is a, is a massive challenge if you're talking about huge battery systems, right? As opposed to the function and what. Are you working also with uh, ceiling technologies when you're talking about customers? We do. Um, the, so from from a, a silicon seal in the battery market um, for we our one effort makes a little fastener that goes in the in what they call the e-fill porthole. Um, the fastener will seal metal on metal. Um, it'll do a helium tight seal by itself, but due to the oh, volume wow. and the potential of errors that could happen on that lid hole, um, you know you can't guarantee what the lid's going to look like. So you, they often will use a silicone seal. Where we used to have to get crazy creative with the box applications, because some of them go through an eBay. So you've got all these rivets holding the battery box together and you put these cute little, you know, nice seal, all these different seals that are available in the market. Plastisol is the number one. Well, that doesn't survive an oven. Nope. Um, it's got to be able to survive. I think it's 350F for as much as 50 minutes. And there's right. only two in the world um, that uh that will pass that test but they're insane it's a company called rimlex out of europe there's a okay. rimlex 310 that's rated to 270 f and there's a rimlex 620 that's rated to i think like close to 400 but it's still not long enough so yeah the, the seal's a problem the seal's a problem on the battery and then the seal's also all over the car everything right. in these cars has to be watertight sure and and 
from an exterior clip to a stud, those are all IP67 or, or dunk rated fasteners that they're requiring. But then when we ask, how are you testing each of these applications to make sure they're watertight, it's crickets. It's like, right. sometimes right. they'll drive it in a pool. And if it comes right. out with water in it, then that means it failed. <laughs> they also sometimes do crazy test rigs, which does not reflect the reality. After I've seen some ceiling tests, they create a testing rig, which potentially, uh, supposedly, actually reflects the reality. But in that test, it'll pass. But if you put the same system in a vehicle or in, in an application, it'll fail. Because that test rig is just good enough for that particular system. It does not reflect real life stresses, the, the torsion, the shear. All those things happen when you're driving around and the ceiling still needs to be, you know, watertight, right? That is one of the, one of the areas which uh, I was working when I was at Webasto. Ceiling of the battery system was always one of the main points. Yep. Especially well, if you have a huge battery system. We saw it with Powerwall because the first rendition of Powerwall was was inside a garage and it, it it's 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 not heat protected, but it's extremity protected. So no rain, mm -hmm. no massive amount of dust. This is Powerwall one. Well now it's Powerwall two and Powerwall three, and they may even be on a fourth series at this point as those are launching. Then it's like, okay, so, you know, there's, it's two halves put together with all the stuff in the middle. Well, there's a flange that runs around the outside of the power wall uh, that's inside that white casing that you see on your wall. There's with screws, rivets, whatever they wanted to put that together with at the time. Now you got to factor, they were, people were putting them on the outside of their house. And so it's like a whole new world. They could get wet. They could get, you know, and debris so now you need an airtight seal but if you're gm and you're building your first packs you you guys still got to use a bolt because yep. they're not good enough at what they're doing yet to guarantee they don't have to take that apart because i i remember like the second change i suggested a rivet because rivets are dummy proof i can put an o-ring on there and you don't ever have to mess with it again but <laughs> When you're in your first generation of a, 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 a power wall or a GM Ultium pack, whatever it is, you're not good enough at that yet to guarantee you don't have to take it apart. <laughs> so serviceability is also a topic. Some of these power walls, they come up with latch where you can get to your fuses, your contacts. Yeah, that is also one of the reasons I think it's going to go through a level of optimization loop in the product lifecycle. If it's anything like the chargers, I mean, if, if you, you've seen the bird's nest pictures of an Electrify compared to the V3 charger and the efficiency of the wires, it, you know, that there's so many wires and it's just like wire management in the car. It needs to be efforted because that's all assembly. Yep. They make yep. they make the power. Everybody in the United States makes their battery cabinets for energy storage in Guadalajara. I am joking when I say that there's places in California or whatever, but if you go down to Guadalajara, huge electronic tiers like Samina and Flex and even Foxconn, they make those white cabinets with the metal handle, the electrical handle, and that's where all the batteries go. Then the tiers down there and the tiers in Fremont make all of the tubes and housings of the superchargers. And so it's literally just assembly. Nobody's making any of this stuff in-house. Even Tesla has 
direct as they are, they're 70% direct versus Ford being 70% tier. Um, it, this is still a tier product for them, but the inside is what matters. How fast can you get all the stuff in for a charger is important when you're trying to make 100,000 of them, 300,000 of them. And so now that we're looking at home charging, Powerwall is on year 11. And, and it, while it's nice that GM has this Ultium home battery and, and they get it, I think I saw your post the other day, like yeah. you could become an energy company as an automotive manufacturer if you if you do it right. The whole right. selling to the grid and residential solar and residential battery and residential charging, like there's a whole new world that could come out of this, these home charging systems, but it won't be as easy to launch them as, as, as it is putting it in a post. No, it is not. Definitely not. I mean, now they are outside their comfort zone as it is because it's not about a car which is moving. It's more, more about talking to the grid, understanding the potentials. They're also having to deal with the AC power, the alternative current, not the DC anymore. They need an inverter outside the car. All these elements will come into play. But I think there's an untapped potential here with all these companies having their own battery cells they can make their own energy. So they, they actually generate their own energy, just like Tesla's doing with their solar panels, their own battery systems uh, for domestic storage. That is going to be the next generation of automakers. They have their huge, huge inventory of cells, and they put some of them in the, in the car, some of them in the power wall, and some of them uh, you know, in, in huge containers for BESS, the battery energy storage systems. Yeah, and because I started on the solar side before I took over EV as well. So I got to live that wild, wild west world from, from fixed tilt solar to tracker solar. But the battery storage back then was all like Exalt and, and some of these big square battery manufacturers selling to an energy storage company that wasn't sourcing their own cells. All they're doing is building the cabinets out. And so solar energy storage was fairly expensive. That was probably one of the most expensive parts of the project. Now, like you said, I'm already buying a trillion cells for my 19 EV platforms. So right. for me to siphon off 150, a $500 million business of energy cabinets, that's what Tesla has been quietly doing and no one noticed. They've been yep. selling these mega pack systems. As much as you're focused on residential, I watch utility pretty heavily okay. and they are dominating the energy storage market when it comes to utilities with solar. Makes like it's insane. Makes sense. Makes sense. Makes absolute sense, especially given the, the understanding that they have their own battery cells from the, the automotive applications, which is the torture test, as you, if you will, right? You go through the vibrations that you have, you have the, the environmental changes, and then you put that cell in a residential application where the cell sits in the same spot the rest of its life. So you're taking it from a very cool and torturous situation and putting it in a very simple and comfort situation. The only thing you need to do is make sure it works, of course, in tandem with all the applications around it. But it is still an easier transition this way than the other way around. I don't imagine, you know, some of these stationary application manufacturers going into automotive. That is a no-go. But the other way around, it makes absolute sense. They absolute did it sense. right, too. They scaled it. So they went, you know, Powerwall at the time was, I think, like 1,421.70 cells. Right. A power pack that they sold commercially to hospitals was 10 power walls shelled up. A mega pack was 10 power packs. So they make oh, the power wall one way and they stick 
without the casing and all the fancy stuff and the logo on the front of Powerwall, you take all that off, it's just an egg crate full of cells and, and fuses and whatever. It's a hard metal. It looks like a gas tank, like a very narrow gas tank. And so now you've already got these being produced in volume. So you stick 10 of those in your commercial product and then you stick 10 of those into your utility product. And like that was the most no brainer. I think they've fumbled yeah. around on the panel side and the solar tiles. I even tried to buy those myself and they were not worth the investment. Um, they're, they're still trying to figure out the solar path. I know that they had a, this massive plant I used to go to in Buffalo. That's all they did was make solar panels. And I don't even know if they're in that space near much as they used to be. That's, I think no one's trying to do both. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if, if they are producing their own solar panels, then that is, that is the end of the equation. I and mean, they can produce their own complete chain, the value chain they have it in house, which is amazing. But that is a totally different technology that we're talking about compared to the battery systems and the inverters that they know. So probably it's, it's, what, it's safe to say that they will be definitely looking into it. Because once they crack that, there's no stopping Tesla in that case. That's been the biggest change in, in all the companies I ever called on versus what I'm starting to see people mimicking the Tesla model is the 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 willingness to bring things in house that for a hundred yeah. years were not made in house. And then even just heavily investing in your tiers instead of having the largest, you know, like a Wavasto or a Magna or, or a, you know, a Cooper Standard, you know, to, to right. pick some of the massive tiers in the world that support automotive. Those are billion dollar efforts, $10 billion efforts, and they're their own corporations and they have markups and everything. So if they have a competitor that was one tenth the size and you're a Tesla or you're Rivian and you have deep pockets, you invest in that competitor to the point where they're yours. And so they did that with plastics. They, what we call ship and shoots, which is, you know, down and dirty dash, you know, stuff that, that. They, they form it one time, trim the edges and pop it in. Like it's, it's not an engineered plastic. It doesn't have to snap in place. There's no, no widgets to it. It's just a, it's a canoe, uh, mold the canoe and, right. and cut the edges off and stick it out the door. Those are called ship and shoots. They were the first company I've ever seen that they, they either owned, I don't know if they own ship and shoots, if they've invested in ship and shoots, but they literally can argue plastics with you in a way that I'd never seen. And it was just, it's their supply chain is it, they think differently. It's that, and I think everybody needs to get past that singular view and that God say what you want to say about the Twitter debacle himself, but kind of those long-term visions. Yep. Sometimes he gets that right. Sometimes he, yep. he does very well at seeing the whole energy. You know, I talk about adjacent needs. So if, I don't ever, I like the Slumberjay example versus Halliburton. Every time Slumberjay buys a company, they don't never ever buy a competitor. Halliburton would always buy out the competition. So if they made pumps and they were losing business to a pump company, they bought the pump company. Lumberjay would not buy the pump company. They would buy the fitting company, the hose company, the hydraulics company. They would buy everything around that pump. And now they're going in with a complete package and they're outdoing their competitor that only makes pumps. And, and he does that a lot. And I think exactly. auto really needs to start looking at that. Like if I want to dominate the van space, should I have a charging infrastructure in every region that we're targeting and how do I deal with that? Absolutely. And 
the charging speed, for example, exactly as you said, the numbers that he threw in in the very first generation, they were preposterous. None of the battery systems could do it. But he did that because he knew that this is a long-term investment and the infrastructure is going to stay so that the numbers should be future-proof in a way. So amazing. I mean, the, the vision that he had 15 years ago kind of changed the way we see the automobile industry today. Um, last question for you today. Would you still recommend uh, buying an EV, regardless if it's a Tesla or an Ionic? Would you still recommend an EV to your friend? In a heartbeat. I, I think it's just the, the main, and we were talking, our programmers and I have our weekly call and, and we were talking about EV this morning and, and they were asking me which ones they, I recommend. And um, I, I recommend it just for the simple fact that as much as I can complain about their service and their charging and all that, I've never actually taken a Tesla in for an oil change, obviously, but not even a brake change. We've owned three Teslas over six years. I've never changed brakes. The only thing that, that are currently problematic on the Ys are the tires seem to be wearing out fairly quickly, like under 20,000 miles quickly. But um, I told both my programmers, not only are you not paying for gas, and in Texas, energy is cheap. Um, California, they pay 37 cents a kilowatt. I pay nine cents a kilowatt it's 60 <laughs> exactly so um we're deregulated in texas meaning there is not a, there's no pg e there's no aaron brock company still causing fires out in california there's 27 energy providers all pulling in from the same distributor and so they compete with each other which is what a fair market is that's not normal in the blue states. The blue states all seem to have, still have that. Anyway, so at nine cents a kilowatt, I don't even see my bill go up. I mean, right. me plugging in the cars hasn't changed our bill at all. Um, and so, yeah, I, I would recommend them all day long. I think if I were rich and famous and I had the ability to own a third car, I think the third car would still be gas. Um, there, there's just a, a world to still own a gas vehicle, I think. Um, but I still would recommend it. I don't think the 2035 goal that everybody keeps champion, I, I'm not there yet. I think if we're 50-50 by 2035, that will be a huge accomplishment. I think mm -hmm. most people just don't understand what's going to go into these companies ramping to those volumes and converting the coal rollers and all the naysayers that just aren't there yet. It, there's just a lot of people that need more convincing, and I don't know what that's going to take. I hear you. Listen, Ryan, thank you for your time. It was amazing. And, uh, Enjoyed it. Nice to finally meet again. Yeah, we'll do. Have a good day. Appreciate it. Thank you. You too, sir. Take care. Bye bye.